Welcome to City Arts and Lectures, a season of talks and onstage conversations with some of the most celebrated writers, artists, and thinkers of our day, recorded before an audience at the Sydney Goldstein Theatre in San Francisco. It's common knowledge that a lack of sleep can lead to a host of problems, from poor decision-making to irritability. But scientific research now suggests even graver impacts, diseases like cancer and Alzheimer's. Matt Walker is a professor of neuroscience and psychology at UC Berkeley, whose research examines the biological underpinnings as well as the immediate and ongoing effects of sleep. On June 10, 2022, Dr. Walker came to the Sydney Goldstein Theatre in San Francisco to speak with neuroscientist Indravis Contes. Join us now for a conversation with Matt Walker and Indravis Contes. Thank you. So the other night I was um, putting my eight-year-old to bed and uh, one of my favorite times with him is like after we turn out the lights and we're just quiet and he still wants me in the room and the things that come out of his mouth at that time of night are very, very interesting. Priceless, probably. <laughs> very honest. <laughs> and he said to me, um, you know, Mom, I don't understand how, like, you know, I have to go to bed and I try really hard. Sometimes it takes me a long time to fall asleep. But then I go from, like, trying to fall asleep to it being 6 a.m. in the morning. <laughs> and he's like, how did all that time just disappear? Isn't it? So... Remarkable. Isn't it? And, you know, in some ways, that's why I think, I mean, sleep has an image problem in society for many different reasons. And whoever the PR agent is for sleep should have been fired years ago because it's got a bad rap. But I think one of the reasons is that most of us feel as though it's just like his experience, that we fall asleep, our mind becomes dormant, our body lies still, and then we wake up the next morning. So if I shortchange my brain and my body for an hour or two hours, what's the harm? Because it's just non-consciousness. It's mm -hmm. just dormancy. Nothing further from the truth is the actual matter of the fact. We know that the brain is you know, going through all of this panoply of different stages of sleep. Mm -hmm. And downstairs in the body, remarkable recuperative operations happen. Sleep is probably the very best form of blood pressure medication that you could mm. ever wish for. It's the time when your immune system gets an overhaul. So firstly, during sleep, we restock the weaponry in our immune arsenal so that we wake up the next day and we are a more virile state of our immune selves. Mm. What's even more remarkable, some recent discoveries, it's not just that we create more of these immune weapons, but the body becomes even more sensitized to those immune factors. Hmm. So once again, you're a more immune resilient organism if you're getting sufficient sleep. And then we know there are changes in reproductive health. We've got changes upstairs going on in the brain that we'll speak about, memory, emotion, um, actually the rebalancing of the, the connections in the brain. So, but the surprising thing is most of us feel as though that time just has gone. 
Yeah, and it, you know, to me it was such a profound question about consciousness too, this idea that if I don't remember it, it didn't happen. Right. And yet, of course, even when we're in some of these uh, different stages of sleep, there are times when we are more aware maybe of what's going on. Yeah. And it's not just like a consciousness switch on or off, right? No, it's not. And, and to come back on that, t I mean, his insight is so elegant because when you are, let's, a great example of this actually for all of uh, the people listening, let's say that you're on a long haul flight and you sort of, you're dozing and then you fall asleep and then you wake up, the first thing that most people do is look at their watch mm. or pull out the clock. Why? Because right. you have not kept a clock counter right. consciously of how much time has elapsed. You had no sense. But then the, the plot thickens because there's a stage of sleep in which we dream. It's principally the stage that we call rapid eye movement sleep or REM sleep, um, named not after the popular Michael 80s uh, pop band, uh, Michael Stipe, but because of these bizarre horizontal eye movements, these rapid eye movements that occur. And dreaming is a very strange state of that time because it's, we get into this idea of what I've called time dilation and time compression. Mm -hmm. So when we dream, let's have the example that most dreaming, by the way, happens in the second half of the night, and you set your snooze button on your alarm. So you wake up to the alarm, and you've clearly been in a dream. Mm -hmm. You hit the snooze button, and then you know that your snooze button is set for five minutes, and you go back into sleep, and you go back into the dream. And then all of a sudden, your alarm goes off again. And you may have experienced what feels like half an hour, 15, 20 minutes of dreaming. Mm. So all of a sudden, five minutes in the real world has been stretched, mm. and it's now 20 minutes in the dream world, which is what I call time dilation. Yeah. But then your son can have what's called time compression, mm -hmm. where all of a sudden, I, the last thing I remember is trying hard to fall asleep, and then my alarm goes off. I've just compressed eight hours into what feels like almost nothing beautiful, elegant, just paradoxes. Yeah, and I mean, sometimes I envy him now because it's like, I, I find it as I've gotten older, it's harder for me to have this experience of, you know, falling asleep and then not having any wake-ups, not having any sense that I, you know, and then just waking up refreshed, you know, eight hours or seven and a half or whatever hours later. Yeah. So we'll talk about that um, in a minute. But, you know, I just want to stick a little bit to this idea of these different stages and the fact that, you know, we are so brain-centric and we, we think about, at least now that we know that sleep is not just turning your brain off and it's got all these other stages. But what is this relationship with the rest of the body? Like, why is it during sleep that all of these immune processes are happening? Because you would think that that could happen when you were awake too. So what is it about sort of that, that combination of the brain being in these different stages, which we can measure, yeah. and triggering all these other uh, cascades of events in the body? There are some dramatic changes that happen in the brain, but also there are chemical changes that happen in the brain that then have knock-on consequences downstairs in the body. Mm. So for example, when we go into deep sleep, and this is a stage of sleep that we call non-rapid eye movement sleep, and especially the sort of the deeper phases of that sleep, 
all of a sudden the brain, by way of its quiescence, will send a signal down the spinal cord that will essentially shut off the fight or flight branch of the nervous system. Mm. So you go from being in this state of when you're awake to having some degree of you know, attentive awareness, and that's the fight or flight branch. Hopefully it's not chronic, which is the state of chronic stress, um, which is where you're all fight or flight sort of um, branch dominant. And you shift over into a more quiet, sort of passive state of the, uh, of the nervous system. And it's at that point that we see this sort of shift in hormonal changes that mm. begin to happen. And it's when you go over, so cortisol, for example, starts to go to its lowest points. It's decreasing as we're getting into sleep. And then it hits its lowest point right in this sweet spot of deep sleep. Mm. And when you are in a, a, a physiological state of low cortisol, some remarkable things happen. It's almost as though your immune system can come out to play mm. because it's devoid of the threat of the fight or flight branch of the nervous system. And it gets the chance because cortisol levels are low to express all of this sort of recalibration of receptors, recalibration of sensitivity. Mm. That's part of the reason why the cardiovascular system gets that same overhaul mm. and you get that drop in blood pressure. Um, but it's also when we recharge our um, hormonal systems. So what we've discovered, for example, is that if you put someone on a, essentially a diet of sleep where you limit them to just you know, four or five hours of sleep for one week and you take a healthy male, young male, and you put them under that duress of insufficient sleep. So like college. So basically college. Okay. What happens is that you, that male will have a level of testosterone at the end of that week that is somewhat similar to a man 10 years his senior. So in other words, a lack of mm. sleep will age a man by a decade in terms of that critical in aspect. A week. Within a week. Wow. And you see equivalent impairments in female reproductive health, in luteinizing hormone, um, in estrogen, and also follicle-stimulating wow. hormone. Um, and is this reversible? I mean, what happens the next week? It's a good question. And now for some processes, it's the damage that you've done, you can't make up. So in that sense, sleep is not like the bank, that you can't accumulate a debt and then hope to pay it off at a later point in time. There was a study that looked at this with the immune system, and they found, sure enough, immune cell deficits, you know, the night afterwards, and that immune deficit stayed low for a week. And this was specifically looking at an immune response to, let's say, a vaccine. And you can keep tracking to see, do those antibodies that the vaccine was there to create, do they ever reemerge? And they sampled them the next day, several weeks later, several months later, and I think it was up to 18 months later, and they still couldn't find the response. Wow. So, you know, in some ways you can ask the question, why is that? You know, why can't we make up for lost sleep? And the answer is this, that human beings are the only species that will deliberately deprive themselves of sleep for no apparent good reason. And what I mean by that though is, is actually, seriously, what it means is that mother nature, every other species that we've studied to date, sleeps carefully, we've studied them, and they don't deprive themselves of sleep. So in other words, during the course of evolution, 
Mother Nature has never had to face this challenge, this thing mm. called a lack of sleep. Mm. Now, there is a precedent for this. It's called the adipose cell or the fat cell because there are times during our evolutionary past when we went into famine and we had feast. Mm. And Mother Nature came up with a very clever solution, which is called the fat cell. Mm -hmm. And so you can store caloric credit and then you can use it when you go into a debt. Where is the fat cell for sleep? <laughs> the answer, yeah. there isn't one hmm. that we best can tell. Okay. Um, <laughs> I'm going to try not to panic because uh, <laughs> we'll get to that later. Um, but so now... We've I, now I have a much better understanding too. It makes a lot of sense too to think about how the immune system needs cortisol levels to be low because, of course, cortisol suppresses the immune system in these yeah. long-term stress studies. Um, so that makes a lot of sense. But what about what's happening in the brain? Because there's also from your work a lot of evidence that what's happening during sleep is critical for memory for, you know, laying down and, and consolidating memories, why does that have to, hap have to happen during sleep? Sleep seems to be this preferential, if not non-negotiable, state of offline information processing. Hmm. And sleep has been demonstrated to be important for learning and memory in three different ways. The first is that we need sleep before learning to actually prepare key regions of the memory to essentially almost like a dry sponge ready to initially soak up new information mm. so that when we wake up, we can lay down new memories. And we did a study, for example, where we deprived people, healthy young people, uh, for one night of sleep. Next day, there was a 40% deficit in their ability to make new memories without sleep, mm. which to me is a little bit concerning considering what we know is happening to sleep in our education populations, yep. by the way. You know, a 40% deficit, that's the difference between acing an exam and failing it miserably. And we went on to discover why, that these key aspects of um, memory formation in the brain had essentially been shut down. It's almost as mm -hmm. though the informational inbox of your brain had become full. And as a consequence, any new incoming files mm -hmm. the next day were just being bounced. You couldn't commit new experiences to memory. So I want to get to the other two as well, but I want to just commend you for, it, it was partly your work too that got California to change the rules oh. about when high school students have to show up at, because of this, right? It, it was a hard partition and, um, sort of, uh, sorry, um, petition. And at first it was cleared and it was on Governor Brown's desk uh, first and it didn't make it through in terms of being signed into law. And then um, Governor Newsom did. Uh, put so it now into high school play, students so. can actually and, and, you know, get a full night's sleep before they have to show up for class. Is that right? Yeah. The Amazing. unslept, underslept brain is, how do I put this? If you don't give children enough sleep, you're educating them amnesic. Hmm. When sleep is abundant, minds flourish. And when it's not, they don't. Okay, so the other two ways. Yes, so you need sleep before learning, but fortunately you also need sleep after learning. But sleep after learning does something quite different. Hmm. Sleep will then take those freshly minted memories in the brain and it will essentially solidify them or hit the save button on those new memories hmm. so that you don't forget. 
Now that hitting of the save button is a very complex biological process. It doesn't happen within milliseconds as it does on your computer. And sleep in part is the reason that there seems to be something special and we know perhaps what's special about sleep. Um, and I'll come back to that in a second, but sleep will effectively future-proof the information in your brain mm. so that you remember long-term rather than you forget. Mm. And you could ask, well, yeah, why is it that sleep is so useful? Why, what's going on during sleep? We have at least two mechanisms. The first is that during sleep, the brain, especially during deep sleep, um, will enact something that looks very much like a file transfer mechanism. Hmm. That it will take memories from a short-term vulnerable reservoir in your brain and shift them over to a more permanent long-term storage site within the hmm. brain and therefore protecting them and making them safe. Do we know, like, does this, is this through replay or like do we know the kind of... And that's the second mechanism huh. is that it's not just memories are getting transferred, it's that memories are also getting scored more deeply into the brain. So think about memory saving, almost like etching on a glass surface, that mm. as you go over it more and more times, as you kind of like replay the, tr the memory trace, you're scoring it more deeply into the brain. Mm. Well, some years ago, gosh, it was uh, over 20 years ago, some scientists were recording um, the memory centers in rats as they were running around a maze and they were trying to understand how the brain makes new memories. Mm -hmm. And essentially think about these different sort of electrodes sitting on different brain cells, listening to them. Mm -hmm. And as the rat is running around the maze, if each one of those brain cells that you're recording from had a sound to it, the rat is running around the maze and you hear this signature of learning. And it would just go over and over. And But then what was fascinating is what happened when the rats fell asleep. Because it didn't just go silent. All of a sudden, the brain started to replay those memories. I mean, that's so fascinating when you think about this idea that like, we're not conscious in that moment, right? That's right. And we tend to think that, you know, especially our conscious remembering of things, like what happened yesterday, I can consciously bring that to mind and, and, and that, that I'm actually actively doing something as I'm remembering it. But that there, there's process. There's this process that I have like no control over at night. That somehow some part of my brain decides yeah. which aspect <laughs> to replay and which not. I mean, that's the beautiful thing about evolution. We don't need to, because Mother Nature has a blueprint manifesto that understands exactly what should be happening in our brain mm. for optimal survival and adaption. So we remember the things that were meaningful or emotional salient, or salient, relevant, yeah. and what's Bizarre, I mean, you could also think about this from the perspective of time, that we're awake for 16 hours, and that's 16 hours of recording of experiences, let's say, but we're only asleep for eight hours. Mm -hmm. So do we only you know, mm -hmm. move through 50% of our day? We don't, because it turns out that that memory replay isn't at normal speed. Hmm. It's not ba 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 bum ba 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 bum when you listen to the brains of these rats falling asleep, all of a sudden what you hear is rum, 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 rum. Oh, interesting. In fact, it's being replayed somewhere between 10 to 20 times faster. Wow. During sleep. Huh. <laughs> that is, that is amazing. Isn't it? Yeah. 
So that's sort of sleep after learning. But then what we realized is that, and this is much more recently now, sleep is much more intelligent than we ever gave it credit for. How do you mean? It's, so it's not just that sleep takes individual memories and strengthens those individual memories. It's during sleep, but now, and by the way, that saving, that sort of hitting the save button on memories, that seems to happen mostly during deep sleep okay. for what we call fact-based memory. Um, but when we go into REM sleep, something different happens for memories. All of a sudden, it's during REM sleep, the stage when we dream, where we start to collide different pieces of information and we start to fuse them together hmm. in these very strange, but it turns out very creative and meaningful ways. So that we wake up the next day and we have a revised mind-wide web hmm. of associations. Hmm. So it's almost, you know, it's almost like informational alchemy <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's the mechanism behind why sometimes when you have a problem, I mean, sleep on it, but don't think about the problem just before you sleep, right? No, <laughs> I mean, that's... Because then you won't go to sleep. That, that's hashtag recipe <laughs> for insomnia. Right. Uh, yeah, but no, it's, you know, it's, there is a reason that no one has ever told you to stay awake on a problem. Right. And, you know, in every language that I've inquired about from... Um, you know, English to Swahili, that phrase, you know, sleeping on a problem or something like it exists, mm -hmm. what that means is that this feature of sleep transcends cultural boundaries. Hmm. It's common across our human experience. Wow. Um, I should note, by the way, I think the, the French sort of rough translation, I may have this wrong, is much closer to you sort of, you sleep with a problem. Whereas we, the British, you say, you sleep on a problem. Uh, French, well, you sleep with a problem. I think that says so much about the difference between the British and the French romantically. But anyway, that's, that's by the by. Uh, we can cut that out, can't we, from the radio? No, no, no I'm kidding. Yeah, Keep we'll, it in. We'll leave that to the other side of the Atlantic to um, figure out. We'll lose my British passport. <laughs> that's very funny. Um, so, of course, there are diseases... Uh, especially those of aging, that affect memory. And they're also tied to disturbances in sleep. Yeah. So tell us about what we know about, so maybe let's start with Alzheimer's disease as, as, as one I think that many people might be aware of as affecting memory um, and possibly having to do with poor quality sleep. What do we know? I think this has probably been the most exciting set of discoveries in sleep science in the past 10 years. Oh, wow. And... What we have discovered is that insufficient sleep or sleep disruption may be one of the most at least significant lifestyle factors that is dictating your trajectory towards or away from Alzheimer's disease. Hmm. And it's in some ways it's a four part story. I, um, so what we knew some years ago is that at the epidemiological level, people who report sleeping less than six hours of sleep had a significantly higher risk of going on to develop more of this Alzheimer's pathology in their brain hmm. and also much more likely to develop, to develop Alzheimer's disease. Then we also learned that two sleep disorders, insomnia and sleep apnea, which is sort of really heavy snoring, hmm. those were both associated with a significantly elevated risk hmm. of Alzheimer's disease. 
Now that's just simply correlation. Yeah. That doesn't prove causality. Mm -hmm. So correlation then went in search of causality and it found it. Hmm. And what we've since discovered is that if you deprive a human being for sleep for just one night, or you even deprive them of just a deep sleep for one night, there is an immediate increase in the escalation of these sticky toxic proteins associated with Alzheimer's disease the next day. Hmm. And we can see that wow. circulating in their bloodstream, circulating in what we call a cerebrospinal fluid that bathes the brain. Hmm. And with using special brain imaging technology, we can actually even see the buildup of Alzheimer's protein the next day within the brain itself. Wow. So that was a causal demonstration. Then the question was, well, if it is causal that when we don't get our sleep, we get this buildup of these um, Alzheimer's proteins. And these proteins, by the way, one of them is called beta amyloid and the other is called tau protein. And both of them are linked in the cascade of what we think of as Alzheimer's disease. The question then became, well, let's reverse the question. What is it about the, the presence of sleep when we do get it that de-risks our chances of Alzheimer's disease protein buildup. Yeah. And this is where I think there was a spectacular discovery made by a scientist called Macon Nedegaard at the University of Rochester. And she was studying rats and mice. And the first major discovery was that she found a sewage system in the brain. Now before, we never thought that the brain had its own sewage system. Now, we knew the body had one, and everyone has heard of this before. It's called the lymphatic system. Mm -hmm. We didn't think the brain had one, but she discovered it, and it's called the glymphatic system. I mean, I remember, yeah, this came out, and it was like, there's this whole system we didn't know about that was just discovered in the last, what, 10 years? Yeah, five years. Really. Five years? How is that possible? Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, in neuroscience, just, it doesn't happen, but... Every now and again, you get wow. these cataclysmic moments. Massive. And it was huge. So, I mean, if that wasn't remarkable enough that she made that discovery, she went on to make two more discoveries. The first thing is that she found that this cleansing system in the brain is not always switched on in high flow volume across the 24-hour period. Hmm. Instead, it was only when those um, mice and those rats went into sleep, and particularly deep sleep, that hmm. it turned on with this astronomical force hmm. and the brain started to pulse with this cleansing fluid, this cerebrospinal fluid, wow. washing away all of the metabolic detritus. Because make no mistake about it from a biochemical perspective, wakefulness is low level brain damage. And what she discovered is that sleep is sanitary salvation. <laughs> and so it's a power cleanse for the brain. The final part of this, the third discovery, is what makes it relevant to our discussion about Alzheimer's disease. Because what she found is that two of the metabolic toxins that a lack of sleep will wash away, beta amyloid and tau protein. Mm. And all of a sudden we had an understanding of a mechanism as to why if each and every night, if you're not getting the sufficient sleep that you need, no wonder that you're starting to build up the Alzheimer's protein. Mm. And across a lifespan, you know, you know, small amounts each, but we can measure them immediately mm -hmm. that after one night. But the small amounts, but if you add those up over time, it's like compounding interest on a loan. And it just escalates. Wow. So, but now there's, you know, 
thanks to your research, thanks to your, your advocacy, we have ideas of what we can do to improve our sleep. And one that I heard recently related to the glymphatic system was sleep position. Yeah. So this is something I think a lot of people are very passionate about, whether they're a side sleeper, or a back sleeper, or a stomach sleeper. Yeah. Um, so By the way, what, what are you? I'm a side sleeper. Yeah, I knew it. <laughs> okay. I'm not going to tell you how. All right. Yeah. <laughs> Kidding. Um, uh, no, which is actually, you know, I had shoulder surgery a few uh, months yep. ago, and the, the thing that made it the most, the, the hardest was that I couldn't sleep on that side, uh, up until actually like two nights ago. Um, and so anyway, it was, uh, <laughs> luckily I had the other side, but, uh, but it, yeah, I mean, anyway. Um, <laughs> so uh, why, why is there, is, and is there, is this just like, you know, another guru saying that, you, you know, <laughs> making us feel guilty about yet another thing that we do wrong? Or yeah, is there any yeah. evidence that sleep I is I feel like one of those people <laughs> no, today too, not. that are going no. to sleep, but you know, I think, to, to st take a step back, your point is a very good one, which is that all of this stuff about, you know, as we get older, um, our learning and memory capacities decline, and then also we know that a physiological signature of aging is that your sleep gets worse, mm -hmm. and not just any type of sleep, especially that deep quality of sleep, and we've been doing a lot of this work. Now, that all may sound very depressing. It's in the mail, it's coming at us all, and now being solidly in the foothills of middle age, I also know this. Speak for yourself. Uh, <laughs> yeah, don't worry. I'm not looking at you at that point. I'm getting a deep interest in my own feet when I'm looking. Um, but I think there's a possible silver lining here because unlike many of the other factors that are associated with aging, for example, changes in the blood flow dynamics of the brain um, or even changes in the physical structure of the brain, those are fiendishly difficult to treat. And medicine doesn't have any good wholesale approaches right now. But that sleep is a missing piece in the explanatory puzzle of aging and Alzheimer's disease. Hmm. May exciting because maybe be uh, exciting because we could do something about it. But I read this and book. It was called Why We Sleep, <laughs> and there's like a whole chapter in science <laughs> about sleep, like the drugs that you can take to help you sleep are like terrible for you, cancer causing, and and all this bad stuff. Yeah. So, so, so. so there are, so one way that we're approaching this question at my sleep center is not by using sleeping pills, as you okay. said. Um, unfortunately, they are somewhat blunt, the classic sleeping pills at least, they're somewhat blunt instruments and they don't necessarily produce naturalistic sleep. Hmm. You know, medicine currently thinks that they have a time and a place for, you know, immediate use, but they are not recommended for long-term use, you know, not hmm. for, right. for months. And some I people see. have been using them for years. Got it. Um, but so one way that we've been approaching this is by using uh, what's called electrical brain stimulation or direct current brain stimulation, where we essentially sing in time with the deep sleep brain waves with mm. our pulses of electricity. And we see if we can amplify the size of those deep mm. sleep brain waves. And in young subjects, if you do that, you can almost double the amount of memory benefit that you get from sleep. Wow. So that's one method. The, but there is some, um, coming back to this cleansing system, the, yeah. the glim, uh, what's called the glymphatic system, um, the sewage system, they started to actually look at the position of the animals in which they were sleeping. Mm -hmm. And what they found, and this is only a small piece of evidence, 
Um, it's only just emerging. It's only in animals, and I'll come back to why I think that's relevant in a second. But they found that when the head was tilted to the side, the cleansing system seemed to be somewhat more efficient. So, wow. however, <laughs> firstly, front sleepers and back sleepers don't freak out. But I, I would say this, though. When was the last time that you saw a picture online or you, you saw your own animal sleeping entirely on its front or entirely on its back? Almost every animal will sleep with its head tilted to one yeah, side. Yeah, that's true. Now, huh. but the problem here and the reason I said it, I'll come back to animals, our head is not oriented in the same way relative to our nervous system that um, quadrupeds right, are. Right. So if you're a dog, you know, your head essentially is like this because it's lined up directly in line with your spine. So it would be as though you're standing as a human with your head staring at the sky. Hmm. But that's mm -hmm. normal for a dog. That's the way it normally is postured. Mm -hmm. But for us, we are tilted because we are bipeds 90 degrees. So our head position is very different and it's evolved in a very hmm. different positional manner. So who knows if side sleeping is at all relevant. I would say position does matter for sleep for one reason though, which is your risk for snoring. And if oh. you're sleeping on your back, it is significantly worse. Because when you're snoring, what's happening is all of these fluttering sort of airway passages um, start to give way to gravity and they close over. And that's what happens. They partially close when you're sleeping on your back and that starts the snoring. The, s the sound of snoring mm -hmm. are these fluttering sort of airway passages. And when those passages give way to gravity entirely and they close, that's when you stop breathing. Hmm. And then all of a sudden, 15 seconds go by, 20 seconds go by, and then <gasps> people come out of sleep and they gasp. I and see. So that's where you know, sleeping on your back cannot be optimal. The old school version, and I don't know, I've never really seen the papers, but it may be hearsay. The solution to helping people treat people with um, sleep apnea, and they're usually males, it's far more prevalent, about twice as prevalent in males than females, usually heavier set individuals. Mm -hmm. They would ask the, the husband to borrow the T-shirt of the wife, who was usually more petite, and asked to borrow a T-shirt that had a pocket on the front. And then they would ask the husband to wear that T-shirt, but turn it back to front, so the pocket's on the back. And then they would say, put a tennis ball in the back of the pocket. And then gradually what would happen is, it would train them to stop sleeping on their back, because every time that they would roll over, it would be so uncomfortable, they would roll back. Kind wow. of genius. It's it is like kind low of fi technology. But that's the only time when really we've got good evidence that position is important. And now I'm just imagining like some app on your watch or, you know, that basically wakes you up if you, anyway. Okay, they're, they're, they are out there. You're <laughs> absolutely right. So there's another kind of um, idea, I think, going around, making the rounds that um, there are different, that, that some people are night owls and some people are morning larks um, that, that sort of, it's not just how much sleep you get, but when you sleep. And that for some people, 
that can be, you know, that, they, that actually it's better if they stay up later but sleep in, et cetera. Is there any truth to that? Or is it just, is it just a habit that you form over time mm. that then you just can't break? So you're absolutely right that I think one of the other big findings in sleep science is that it's not all about the quantity of sleep, the duration of sleep. It's also about the quality of that sleep. In fact, mm. quality may be as if not even more important than quantity. You need both, it turns out. You can't shortchange on either side of the quantity or quality equation. But the reason I bring up quality is because it's very relevant to what you described as chronotype. Am I a morning type, evening type, or somewhere in between? The, the thing I want to sort of mention, though, is that it's not your fault. And what I mean by this is you don't get to decide if you're a morning type, evening type, or a neutral. Huh. It is genetically determined. We now know many of the genes. There's at least nine genes that have been discovered that will dictate your chronotype. Huh. It's gifted to you at birth, and then it stays with you. And the reason I say it's not your fault is that I'm specifically talking about evening types because we chastise evening types as being slothful or lazy. Why can't you get out of the bed? Why can't you be at the gym like everyone else at 6 a.m. in the morning and in the office, bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, energizer bunny at 7, ready to go? You know, just try harder. Mm -hmm. Get to bed earlier. Mm -hmm. It doesn't work like that. It is your biology. And when you fight biology, you normally lose. And the way you know you've lost is disease and sickness. And it's a classic case with evening types where you just say, well, just go to bed earlier. And many evening types will come up to me and they'll say, look, I, am, I have really bad insomnia. I get into bed and I just cannot fall asleep. Mm. And then I'll ask them what time you're going to bed. And then I'll ask them about their chronotype. And there's, you can go online, you can do something called the MEQ, which is the morningness, eveningness questionnaire. It's free online. You can figure out if you're a morning type, evening type. Or you can just do a very simple question. You know, if you're on a desert island, nothing to wake up for, no responsibilities, what time would you naturally like to go to bed and mm -hmm. like to wake up, which is very mm -hmm. different than what most people are doing. When do I have to go to bed? and have to wake up. Well, when do my children wake me up? Right, and yeah. that's the other thing. With that, at that point, you know, yeah. you're dead in the water for the next, you know, uh, X number of years, 80 years. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's th that, to me, is a good demonstration of one of the problems with chronotype. I speak to these evening types and they'll say, if I have my preference, and especially at the weekend, I'll usually go to bed around 1 a.m. and I'm waking up around 9 or 9.30. And I sleep actually quite well at the weekend. But during the week, because of scheduling, because of the way society is biased, mm -hmm. I have to go to bed at 10 and wake up at 6. Well, going to bed at 10, if you're an evening type, that's a disaster. Your biology and your whole mm. body and your brain is not going to be ramping down for the next two hours. Mm. So no wonder you're going to be lying in bed for two hours and you can't shut off your mind. It's not your fault. So knowing your chronotype. So again, you know, an eight-hour sleep period for someone from um, who's a bit more of a morning type. They're going to bed at you know 10 p.m. and waking up at six, mm -hmm. versus an evening type going to bed at 1 a.m. Sorry, I may have said 1 p.m. the other day. 1 a.m. and waking up at 9 a.m. That's the same quantity of sleep. Mm -hmm. It's eight hours. 
Right. But if you take that evening type who normally likes to go to bed at 1 a.m. and wake up at 9 and shift them back from 10 p.m. to 6 a.m., it's the same quantity of sleep opportunity time that they get, hmm. but the quality of their sleep will not be as good. And now we can see sort of the, the impact that, that these... Uh, you know, s these sleep issues or the way that society, you know, bends people and, and forces them to go against their chronotype can have on, on mental health. And so I wonder if you could just tell us a little bit about the relationship between sleep and mental health. And, um, you know, I, obviously it's complicated by all of these factors, including that if you are an evening type and you are forced to go to bed early and then you develop insomnia because you're in bed at the wrong time, that's going to impact yeah. your mental health. But what are some other ways in which the two are related? There is a very intimate link between your sleep health and your emotional health. Hmm. And we've done a lot of work in this area, we and a lot of other people. The first point to make is the following. In the past 20 years of research, we have not been able to discover a single major psychiatric condition in which sleep is normal. Hmm. I think that tells us almost yeah. everything that we need to know. And intuitively, we have this sense, you know, I just mm -hmm. snapped dot, dot, dot. You know, that's an unfolding mm -hmm. tragedy to, you know, a parent who's underslept mm -hmm. because of the child, you know, an underslept soldier who is responding inappropriately um, in combat. But also, I think, coming back to the parent uh, example, you know, every pro everyone can probably remember, you know, a parent holding a young child, the child is crying, and they look at you and they say, well, they just didn't sleep well last night. As if there's some universal parental knowledge mm -hmm. that bad sleep the night before equals bad mood and emotion mm -hmm. reactivity the next mm -hmm. day. Why is this? So we started conducting some research and we discovered the following. Firstly, if you take an individual and you deprive them of sleep, and then you put them inside of a brain scanner, and we focus on the very, these very deep emotional centers of the brain, structures that we call the amygdala, and they're almost the centerpiece regions for the generation of strong emotional reactions, including negative reactions. And when we looked at that structure in those people who were sleep deprived, we saw that it was hyper-reactive. In fact, the amygdala mm. was 60% more reactive under conditions of a lack of sleep. But then the question became, well, why, do, why is my emotional brain so sensitive, so reactive? And that came with part two of the story. We then went on to discover that there's another part of your brain called the prefrontal cortex that sits directly above your eyes. It's one of the most evolved regions of, of the brain. That part of the brain is shut down by sleep deprivation. And why mm. that's important is because you can think of your prefrontal cortex almost like the CEO of your brain, mm -hmm. in that it's very good at making high-level, top-down executive control decisions and regulation. And one of the regions that it controls is the deep emotional centers, mm. these primal regions. So that region of your prefrontal cortex had been shut down, and the connection between your prefrontal cortex and the amygdala had been severed. And as a consequence, you became incredibly emotionally unbuckled. That's why your emotional integrity is so challenged when you're mm. not getting sufficient sleep. Oh, wow. Yeah, sure. Then you're quicker to anger, you're quicker to irritation. Short and fuse. And poor decisions. Emotionally irrational, too. We also found it's very pendulum-like. 
that it makes you very unstable. So I think the, this change in our emotions is not just about we slide down to become more negative. We've become also, unfortunately, very reward sensitive. Mm. So we become more impulsive and we also become more risk taking. Mm. We have higher rates of sensation seeking. Then no wonder what we've then subsequently found is a strong relationship between a lack of sleep and addiction disorders. Right. Both your propensity to become addicted, and also if you try to go cold turkey and withdraw, the severity of your sleep disruption predicts your chances of relapse. Hmm. So if we stabilize sleep, we, can we decrease relapse? So that's the bad that happens emotionally to your brain if I take sleep away. The question then once becomes, so what happens when I get my sleep back? Mm -hmm. And we've since discovered that during sleep, and particularly during dream sleep, dream sleep acts almost like a nocturnal soothing balm. That hmm. it provides a form of emotional first aid, or what we've described as overnight therapy. Hmm. And it's during dream sleep that we take these difficult, painful experiences that we've had, and we just start to sort of smooth the sharp edges off those difficult mm. experiences. We take the painful sting out right. of those experiences so that we wake up the next day and those experiences don't feel as painful anymore. Mm. So in other words, it's not time that heals all wounds. It's time during sleep and specifically dream sleep mm. that provides that form of emotional convalescence, as it wow. were. And you know, and is this something that, that kids have to learn how to do? Because a lot of kids suffer from nightmares. In fact, there are stages in childhood that are just characterized by real fear um, of their dreams. Yeah. Um, in fact, my son sometimes says he doesn't want to fall asleep because he's worried that he's going to have a nightmare. It's a real palpable fear that he has. Yep. Does it, is this just something that they need to go through? Or like, do we learn this process? Or is it just that you know, they don't have a prefrontal cortex as children. That's, so one of the leading theories is that they just have a very underdeveloped prefrontal mm -hmm. cortex for control, but yet a very fully developed set of deep, primitive mm -hmm. emotional centers, of course, mm -hmm. because they're, you need to ramp them up in terms of their wiring very early during development because those emotions are critical for them. You know, right. emotions get a bad rap. It, you know, that don't be so emotional. Oh, they are so emotional. Well, it turns out that emotions are wonderful things. And in fact, I will guarantee everyone listening, you have never performed any significant decision or action in your life if it wasn't dictated by one of two emotional directions. Mm -hmm. Staying away from something that was bad, going towards something that was good. You cared. You cared. Yeah. And that's what emotions are there for. Hmm. They dictate. So, so, but with children, you still have this very strange balance in the dynamic. The prefrontal cortex, you know, children, quote unquote, are still that children in, from a brain perspective mm -hmm. until they're maybe 25 years old. Mm -hmm. uh, I remember there was this great um, all state, uh, the insurance company, and I have no relationship with this, not an endorsement, but there was a great commercial that they had, and it said, why does your teenager drive like they've got some part of their brain missing? 
because they have. And the answer have. was, because they have. Right. <laughs> Some part of their brain missing. And yeah. there was this big hole in their prefrontal cortex wow. for the like, commercial. Um, so that's one of the, the reasons. We actually don't know why children have a much higher propensity of nightmares. Huh. Um, also night terrors, where they yeah. just wake up and they weren't dreaming. Night terrors actually oh, come from deep sleep, not from dream sleep. Oh, wow. huh. Because if you ask someone who's had a night terror or a child, and you say, what was going through your mind before you woke up? Say nothing. Hmm. Because they were in deep sleep, they weren't dreaming. It's oh. just this, and what we think is happening is perhaps there's a jag in the nervous system that forces you awake, and it creates this sort of anxiety state and you awaken with this almost terror, and that's what children have too, night terrors. Right. They decrease in frequency as we get older. Some adults will still have them, uh, and it's the same with nightmares too. Hmm. So um, there's also obviously a lot of different substances that people use that can affect their sleep. Um, we've, we briefly mentioned the traditional sleeping pills, but a lot of people also, I think, turn to um, recreational drugs like CBD, for example, or THC, marijuana. Yeah. Um, and, it, and so I wondered now if you could tell us, what is the latest science on whether um, marijuana is an effective sleep aid? And, you know, of course, you can now get very specific recipes of how much THC versus CBD. You know, if people are, yeah. are, are looking towards aids for sleep, is that a place they should go? Should they avoid it? What's the story? So the evidence on THC, so um, if you're smoking cannabis, it usually contains both what we call THC, tetrahydrocannabinol, as well as CBD. THC is the sort of what we call the psychoactive part of, of cannabis. That's the part that gets you high. Okay. So THC, not good for sleep. Hmm. There is evidence that THC, and many people will turn to smoking cannabis as a sleep aid, there is some evidence that it can speed up the time with which it takes you to fall asleep. So in other words, you hmm. fall asleep somewhat faster. Okay. But there are two problems with THC. The first is that you develop a dependency on it from a sleep hmm. perspective, such that if you stop using it, then you have a, a sleep withdrawal syndrome, and it's a syndrome of insomnia, where your sleep not only becomes bad, but it can sometimes be even worse than before you started using it to medicate your sleep. Mm. So we don't advise THC for that reason. The second reason is that THC is really quite good at blocking your dream sleep, your rapid eye mm. movement sleep. Just like alcohol. Just like alcohol. Huh. Alcohol, and they do it through two different pharmacological mechanistic routes but the end outcome is somewhat similar. Hmm. And many people who you know, smoke very frequently will say, yeah, I just, I don't dream very much. And if they mm. stop smoking um, marijuana um, or you know, ingesting it, they'll say all of a sudden, I, just, I started dreaming so intensely. Hmm. Why is this? Well, it's because your brain is somewhat clever that it's been being deprived of REM sleep for hmm. night after night after night, and it's almost keeping a clock counter of how much REM sleep you're in the red for. Wow. And when you stop using it, all of a sudden you get what's called a REM sleep rebound effect, hmm. where you get these intense phases of, of dream sleep hmm. as a consequence. It's very well documented. So THC, best of you, uh, 
best to be avoided. CBD, however, I think the best way I can describe the state of the union right now, the state of affairs, is that it's quote-unquote interesting. <laughs> I don't think <laughs> okay. any scientist right now, based on the weight of the evidence, can go on record and say, CBD is you know, the Shangri-La that we've all been waiting for to solve our sleep problems. Okay. But the evidence is moving in a direction that may favor it. Uh, I've got lots of disclaimers mm -hmm. there. You know, I'm hedging, may, possible, for good reason. There is evidence in animal studies where if you dose more with CBD, not with THC, there is an increase in the duration with which those animals will sleep. They also mm. may get more deep hmm. uh, sleep. Um, sometimes the worry is that it comes at the cost of REM sleep then because non-rapid eye movement sleep, uh, including deep sleep, deep non-REM sleep and REM sleep, almost have an antagonistic relationship. When you mm. dial up one, you usually push down the other and vice versa. Um, but so, so far it was looking good. And then if you look in at some of the human studies, and there are only a handful of very small studies, it does suggest that CBD may also have some kind of sleep-assisting effect. Mm. But two caveats. The first is that we have no robust, sufficient data to make any suggestions. Mm. The second is that right now, it's largely an unregulated space. Mm -hmm. And so you don't really know what you're buying. It's the Wild West out there. Right. Now, there are some you know, companies that will say that we have third-party independent laboratory tests, and you scan the QRI code on the bottle, and you, know, you see the third-party laboratory. Not that I would know of, by the way. I just hear that. Mm -hmm. That's the case. Um, people tell you. People tell me. Yeah. So, so, so they say. Um, the, the, if we then just kind of do the thought experiment, let's say that you and I are now sitting here in five years' time, and we have that evidence, and it really does seem to favor CBD. By the way, what limited evidence that there is suggests that CBD is not quite as simple as you would think. It may have what's called a bimodal distribution of an, an impact mm. on sleep. What I mean is that in quite low doses, it may be wake-promoting. Oh, wow. Whereas in higher doses, it may be sleep-promoting. And it's hard to know what though that kind of cutoff is, but it seems to be somewhere above 25 plus milligrams is where you start to get into the safer territory huh. of, of better sleep with CBD. But again, don't. Th this is not me recommending, advocating, nor suggesting a dose at all. We just don't have the evidence. But let's say that we have the evidence in five years' time. How could it be doing it? Well, we already have some signals. If you look at some of the animal studies, um, what I have not discussed so far is that temperature is a big part of the sleep equation. That mm. you need to drop your core and your brain body temperature, your core body temperature, by about one degree Celsius or about two to three degrees Fahrenheit mm. for you to fall asleep and stay asleep. Oh, that's why it's so hard to sleep when it's hot. And that's why it's, you will always find it easier to fall asleep in a room that's too cold mm. than too hot. Mm -hmm. Because the room that's too cold is taking you in the right temperature di direction. Got it. Why is this relevant for CBD? turns out that if you looked at those, some of those rat studies, and I've looked at them in depth, CBD is what we call hypothermic. It dropped the core body temperature. So I think one route is by way of temperature. The other is upstairs in the brain. That CBD, and here the studies are actually 
quite good. Hmm. Human studies as well, using brain scanning technology. CBD is what we call an anxiolytic, meaning that it decreases anxiety. Remember that structure that we spoke about, the amygdala, mm -hmm. that deep emotional center? When people are dosed with CBD and they're inside of the brain scanner, that emotional center of the brain is actually quietened down. Hmm. So, and one of the principal mechanisms for this thing called insomnia is an excessive hyperreactive nervous system, hmm. which is another way of saying psychologically anxiety and stress. So yeah, maybe you just need to chill out, man. Exactly, yeah. said so California, but it yeah. seems to be very true, um, despite being Canadian, I know. So, um, all right, we need to sleep. We, we have some conventional tips, as you mentioned, get, get the room to be a little bit maybe cooler, I'm, I'm assuming, you know, dark before bed. Yeah. Can you give us any unconventional tips? What have we not heard that, that, um, that can help us sleep? Because clearly it's something that we need to be doing. Yeah, apparently I, yeah, I read a book once that told me it was good for you. Good for you. <laughs> um, so unconventional tips. So people have heard, as you said, you know, regularity, darkness, stay away from, you know, and by the way, when it comes to cannabis and caffeine and alcohol, you know, I don't want to be puritanical. I am just a scientist. I'm not here to tell anyone how to live their life. Uh, I just want to impart the science of sleep and then people can make an informed choice. So I'm not trying to be um, sort of uh, dictatorial about that. So, you know, staying away from too much caffeine during the day, you know, try to avoid, you know, too many drinks at night. Um, certainly if you're going to bed, you know, tipsy, not a good sign. You know, life is to be lived to a certain degree, but unfortunately, even one glass of alcohol in the evening, we can measure the impact of sleep. It's, it's pretty, on, on sleep, it's pretty clear. But the unconventional tip, I think the first one would be this. After a bad night of sleep, or if, you had, if you've had a string of bad nights of sleep, if you're going into that sort of insomnia cycle, the best advice I have for you is do nothing. And what I mean by that is, don't then subsequently, if you've had a bad night of sleep, wake up any later. Don't go to bed any earlier that following evening. Mm -hmm. Don't take a nap during the day. And don't try to medicate with caffeine too much. And let me explain them, because people don't respond to rules. People respond to reasons, not rules. So I'll try and unpack and give you the reasons. Firstly, if you then decide to stay awake, sorry, decide to stay in bed longer and you sort of sleep longer, then what's going to happen is the next night when you come to, to your regular bedtime, you've not been awake for the same amount of time mm -hmm. because you woke up later. And it turns out that when we're awake, everyone here listening, from the moment you woke up, a chemical has been building up called adenosine, and it's the sleepiness chemical. And the more that builds up, the sleepier that you feel. And when we sleep, the brain gets the chance to cleanse itself mm -hmm. of that sleepiness chemical. So after eight hours, we wake up feeling refreshed. So the point is that if you wake up later, by the time your natural bedtime is arriving, you don't feel sleepy, but you get into bed thinking, well, I had a bad night of sleep, so I'm going to get into bed. And now you're lying in bed for an hour and mm. you've now guaranteed another bad night of sleep. Why? Because you woke up an hour later. The same is true for going to bed any earlier. Don't forget that you have this very rhythmic, very consistent, very mm. hardwired circadian rhythm or 24-hour rhythm. 
And if you go to bed earlier saying, well, you know, I, I had a bad night of sleep, I'm going to try and be diligent, I'm going to get into bed an hour earlier, the chances are that your biology is not expecting to be in bed an mm. hour earlier. So what happens once again, you're lying in bed now an hour earlier and you can't fall asleep, and it's a disaster. Um, caffeine is obviously um, very self-explanatory. When it comes to the naps, the reason I say don't take a nap also comes back to this idea of adenosine, the sleepiness chemical. Mm. That when we sleep, as I said, we essentially get the chance to remove that sleepiness chemical. So if you take a nap during the day, it's almost like a pressure valve on a cooker Hmm. that you release some of that healthy steam that you've been building up, that sleep pressure that you've been building up. Yeah. And so now it makes it, so you've, you've, if you didn't nap, you get the chance to build up all of this healthy weight of sleepiness across the day, and then it guarantees a higher probability of finally the next night having a good night of sleep. But if you nap, um, it's a... what. It's a little bit like snacking before your main meal. You know, mm -hmm. it just takes the appetite edge off your hunger for sleep and you won't sleep as well. Now, if you're not struggling with sleep at night, naps can be just fine. Um, they are a double-edged sword in this sense, but we've done lots of studies with naps. They have some great benefits. If you are going to nap during the day, rule of thumb, try to not nap after about 2 or 3 p.m. in the afternoon because of the reason you don't want it to happen too close to bed. Oh, but that's like the best time to nap. I, uh, okay. Try to avoid that. Uh, and right. also, don't have those naps go probably any longer than about 20 minutes. Otherwise, you start to go into the deeper stages of sleep when you wake up. You typically feel miserable for the next hour. It's what's called a mm -hmm. sleep hangover effect or what we call technically sleep inertia. So keep them to around 20 minutes. Try to not go much later than, let's say, 3 p.m. You've told us the importance of sleep how critical it is, how we don't make up our sleep debt, and now you're telling us, make sure you don't nap during the day. I mean, it, you know, there's a, there's a part of me sometimes that just starts to panic about it. Yeah. And, um, you know, there's so many ways in which now we can track how well we're sleeping and optimize this and hack that, and it's just overwhelming. Yeah, and I think that's one of, you know, I look back when I wrote the book um, and started, you know, doing a lot more public speaking. I think I was too heavy-handed. Uh, I look back and I, you know, I'm a little bit ashamed and I've definitely changed the way you probably wouldn't know it from this evening, but I've tried to soften things a little bit because I don't want to, you know, the last thing if you're an insomnia patient you need to hear are all of the ways in which a lack of sleep is bad. And I was a little bit too forthright. And the reason is because, you know, back when I was starting to write that book, and it took me about four years to write it, sleep was still the neglected stepsister mm -hmm. in the health conversation of today. Right. And I was just so sad at knowing the, the suffering and the sickness that was being caused by a lack of sleep that I just wanted to tell the whole world about how mm -hmm. critical it was and bring it onto the map as another you know, element toward, you know, as nutrition and exercise was. So, but what I realized is that, particularly for people struggling with sleep, you know, coming out so strongly with that, there are better ways that you can communicate the science in a softer manner. And I've certainly been schooled by that. So I would say that, you know, if you're struggling with sleep, firstly understand everyone has a bad night of sleep. I have them too, I'm not immune to them. Um, 
don't worry, don't start to freak out in bed. Just realize tonight's not my night. Sit there, lie in bed, or try not to lie in bed awake for too long is the general rule. After about 30 minutes, get up, go do something else. But also, most people don't like doing, getting up, going somewhere else. Instead, just think, well, I'm just gonna rest. You know, how nice would it be if someone in the middle mm -hmm. of your workday said, I'd like you to just rest on a bed for 30 minutes. Wouldn't that be nice? Well, if you're not being able to, you, know, you can't sleep, just think, this is lovely. I'm just going to have a rest. I'm just going to rest. And usually, that's the last thing that you remember, and then your alarm goes off, and all of a sudden, you stop overthinking it. Sleep in that way is a little bit like trying to remember someone's name. The harder you try, the further you push it away. Just yeah. relax. Don't listen to me. No, I mean, you know, I think it's actually a, a testament to how powerful both your work as a researcher and your talent and skill um, and preparation as a science communicator that it is now a topic of national conversation. So thanks. Well, I, I stand on the shoulders of, of everyone else in my field. Um, so any questions from the audience? This question's to your left. Hi. Hi. Two questions. Um, one... For those of us who travel quite a bit across time zones, do you have any advice on how to deal with sleeping? For example, if you're going across five or six time zones, what's the best way to deal with the deprivation of sleep on yeah. a plane? And the second question relates to the use of melatonin to help with that, uh, and, or, or just generally sleeping. Yes, so um, unfortunately we don't have any cures for jet lag. Uh, well, I suppose, we, I suppose we do, which is don't travel, and that's not very helpful in terms of an advice. But uh, as someone, obviously, as you can tell, you know, my home is quite far away, so I'm quite familiar with that experience of traveling through those time zones. There are a number of things that you can do to try to lessen the impact of jet lag. They, some of them start uh, as you're traveling, and some of them continue once you've arrived in the new time zone. I think the best first piece of advice that I can tell you is that as soon as you get onto the plane, change all of your clock faces to the new time in the, the new time zone that you're traveling to. And that way, instantly, your brain is already operating on the new destination time. So, you know, if I'm getting on a plane um, to go back home to the UK, eight hours difference, you know, I look at my watch and maybe my watch here in San Francisco is saying, you know, it's eight, seven or eight in the evening. But if I change my watch already, I'm realizing it's three or four a.m. in the morning. Almost everyone in the UK is fast asleep where I'm going, meaning I should be fast asleep already. And so most people on that transatlantic flight from the west coast of, of America back to Europe will sleep at the wrong time. They are awake for the first half of the flight, which is when people in the new destination are asleep. And then they're asleep in the second half of the flight when everyone in the new destination has woken up. <laughs> so your goal is to try to already get closer to that schedule. When you're on the flight too, avoid alcohol and caffeine for the reasons that we've discussed. They're not going to help you, um, especially with your resetting of your circadian rhythm. When you arrive in the new time zone, try to get regular. So firstly, get as much daylight as you can in the first half of the day. And if you're outside doing that, even um, on a cloudy day, get that daylight. If it's a sunny day, don't wear shades. You can wear a hat for some protection, but get as much natural light in in the first half of the day. In the afternoon, 
You can go out in the light, that's fine, but put shades on, that's the time to look cool. Um, because you're already starting to try and block the light and encourage the release of a hormone that you mentioned called melatonin. Eat at regular times too. Food is just as powerful a resetter, like a set of fingers on a wristwatch that can pop them out and reset your biological clock. The other thing is expectation. Your biology can only catch up in the following equation. For every one day you're in a new time zone, expect to acclimate one hour in terms of your own internal rhythm. So if I go back home to um, England, it's eight hours ahead. It's gonna take me eight days before I'm going to be on their rhythm. So I just try to understand that and treat myself kindly. It's usually just the time when I then have to fly back, which is oh, great. Um, the, the other thing uh, I was going to mention is melatonin. Melatonin is a hormone, it's sometimes called the hormone of darkness or the vampire hormone. Not because melatonin, when you take it or when it's released, makes you look longingly at people's necklines and want to bite in. Um, it just, it's just the hormone of darkness. It comes out at night. And melatonin helps regulate the timing of your sleep. But it doesn't really help with the generation of sleep itself. And so melatonin as a sleep aid doesn't seem to be very effective. There's a, what's called a meta-analysis where scientists take all of the individual studies and they put them in a big bucket and they analyze them all together to get some big statistical viewpoint. And what they found is that melatonin only decreased the time that it took you to fall asleep by about 3.9 minutes, which is relative to the placebo. Uh -huh. And then it only increased your sleep efficiency by 2.2% overall. So not a big effect size. And this is no surprise, again, as I said, based on what we know. Think of melatonin almost like the starting official at the 100-meter race. Melatonin is that official that brings all of the great sleep racing ingredients to the line and begins the great sleep race. But melatonin does not participate in the race itself. That's an entirely different set of chemicals. So it's no wonder that it's not really effective once you are stable in a new time zone. However, once you're traveling between different time zones, then melatonin could be strategically useful. Be mindful of the dose, however. Most people are taking what we call a supra-physiological dose, which means that it's far higher than anything your body would naturally release. Some people are taking you know, five, even 10 milligrams of melatonin. The, the sweet spot seems to be perhaps somewhere between about 0.3 and 1 milligrams, so log orders of magnitude less. Now, there wasn't a recent paper that came out just a, maybe four days ago showing that maybe up to 3 or 5 milligrams may still be beneficial for some people. I have a question about dreams. Um, you say that, does everybody dream? Because I don't remember dreams. Yeah. So that is really my question. It's a great question. And... In some ways, you have, your question was so elegant in the dissection of what is going on because you're, you started by saying, does everyone dream? And then you followed that up by saying, because I don't remember my dreams. And it turns out that those two things are very different. Almost everyone that we know dreams, has rapid eye movement sleep and has dreams. There are a few 
rare neurological cases where they have damage to the frontal cortex where they truly don't seem to dream. But most people do dream. It's simply that when they wake up, some people don't commit that experience to memory or they commit the experience to memory and they can't consciously recollect it. And so that they think that they don't dream. When they are dreaming, it's just that, as you delightfully said, I just don't remember my dreams. By the way, that leads to something that's philosophically quite scary, which is that I'm sure everyone has had that experience where you wake up and you think, I know I was dreaming, I was absolutely dreaming. And the harder you try, the, the, you can't remember it. And then you say, okay, I, I've got it. And then two days later, you're walking in the grocery store and you walk past a, super, you know, a, a shampoo bottle and the label all of a sudden just triggers this unlocking of the dream and it comes flooding back. What that tells you is that there is simply an issue with accessibility versus availability when it comes to your memories. That memory was available. It was always there. It just wasn't accessible to you consciously at the time. In other words, your brain for a short period of time had lost the IP address to go and find the, the dream. But if that's the case, if that we forget quote unquote, most of our dreams, but we don't really forget that they're all stored there. It's just that we don't have conscious recollection. Then imagine what our dreams could be doing to our behaviors. There's a huge literature in psychology called implicit memory, where things that you're not aware of, but you have stored in your brain, influence your decisions, your choices, your actions, your emotions. What if we remember all of our dreams and what if all of those dreams have a marked, far more powerful influence on our choices, decisions, actions, and our emotions every single day? And we've just missed it as a sleep community because we just think that you've forgotten them because you can't remember them. I've had the experience of having a bad dream where someone in my dream that I know did something egregious to me, and then the next day I'm angry with that person, and it's Isn't not it? their fault at all. Isn't it remarkable? <laughs> yeah. It's almost as though there is this emotional blanket that is wrapped around us during the dream state, that when we wake up, sometimes we just can't shake off that blanket. Mm -hmm. I mean, I've had those dreams where I've had really sad dreams or sort of depressing dreams, and I wake up and I can feel it, it's still heavy with me. And then throughout the day, occasionally I'll notice that I'm just, I, I'm not having a good day. And then I'll realize, wow, mm -hmm. it's still the, this blast radius almost of the emotional impact footprint that my dream had on me the night before. I just want to say, you know, I think we are all incredibly grateful for not only the way in which you have built up this body of research that has informed how we sleep and why we sleep, but also telling us about it and, and making the case. So thanks. Thank Matt. you so much. Thank you for interviewing me. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. You've been listening to a conversation on the science of sleep with Dr. Matt Walker and neuroscientist Indre Viscontis. This program was recorded at the Sidney Goldstein Theater in San Francisco on June 10, 2022. These broadcasts are produced by City Arts and Lectures in association with KQED Public Radio, San Francisco, Executive producers are Kate Goldstein-Breyer and Holly Mulder-Wallen. Director of Communications and Design is Alexandra Washkin. 
Jordan White assists with production and communications. The post-production director is Nina Thorson. The Sydney Goldstein Theatre technical director, Stephen Eckerd. The recording engineer is Jane Heaven. Theme music composed and performed by Pat Gleason. The founding producer is Sydney Goldstein. City Arts and Lectures programs are supported by Grants for the Arts of the San Francisco Hotel Tax Fund. Additional funding provided by the Mimi and Peter Haas Fund, the Bernard Osher Foundation, and the Friends of City Arts and Lectures. Support for recording and post-production of City Arts and Lectures is provided by Robert Mailer Anderson and Nicola Miner. To attend a live program, see who is coming next, or find out more about our podcast, visit our website at cityarts.net. That's cityarts.net. <laughs>